Welcome to uh, Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led gardening and a person who believes it's simple common sense, simple common sense to have a food system that honors water and all life. And but but that's not really how our food system works right now. And I thought a court case. I was so optimistic that a court case out of Arizona this month is really would help the the movement towards um, a, a better agriculture for all. And uh, so the court ordered that the um, the, the court said that the um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency violated its own rules in improving a chemical that is blamed for millions of acres of crop damage and harm to endangered species in natural areas across the Midwest and South. Let me repeat that. Blamed for millions of acres of crop damage and harm to endangered species in natural areas across the Midwest and South. So the EPA, um, the court said, EPA, you're not doing your job, and we're going to stop these chemicals. And then yesterday, the EPA came out and said, nope, farmers can spray it. It's, And so that, of course, has angered a lot of environmental activists. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking more about this um, later in the show. But just to briefly quote from the Center of Biology Diversity, the Center for Biological Diversity, it is though... It is as though they didn't lose this lawsuit. It's hard to imagine what it would take to get rid of Dicamba. Dicamba. It's like a zombie that just keeps coming back and coming back. Um, There's never been a point where the EPA didn't bend over backwards to give the companies what they want. So the question is, who does the EPA work for? And again, we're going to be talking about um, this later in the show. And first, I want to replay an interview I did because I think this really puts this whole issue in context. So there's a new book out uh, called Barron's Power, Money, Corruption of American Food Industry. And it's by um, Austin Fredericks. Um, and his book um, uh, just got dropped from Publishers Weekly, and it received their rare four um, a coveted uh, star must-read book things. So I'm going to replay this um, interview uh, with Austin, and then I'll be back and talk about uh, the uh, news out this week. There is no life I know to compare with pure imagination. Living there, you'll be free. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led gardening and a person who's looking forward to the new Wonka movie. Now, I haven't seen it, so I don't want too much of high um, expectations. But uh, but I am I am I I love that song, um, Pure Imagination, and and I love this. Um, if you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do, do it. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it. And that is such a sort of a, a daunting phrase, especially when we understand what's happening with the world. Um, and so with us to explain what's happening with our food system is Austin Frederick. He's the um, author of a book that's going to be released in March called Barron's Money, Power, and the Corruption, Corruption of American's Food System. You got your book there. So welcome to Food Freedom mm-hmm. Radio, Austin. Thank you for having me on, Laura. As we mentioned earlier, um, you're the first person I've talked to for the book as I start the rollout process. So I'm really excited today. Awesome. I'm excited, too, because uh, I know we had a great conversation earlier. But let's let's start start with um, your background in Iowa and five mm-hmm. or seven generations you can trace back. Yeah, that was one of my COVID projects is my husband and I did one of those family tree things. Uh-huh. So like I'm ve- I, so I'm from the northeast part, like Decorah. Cedar Rapids kind of part of town, um, of the state, sorry. And I don't know, it's really fun, but also, I mean, so much of my Iowa background shaped this book. And I say that in that 
I got to be careful with this language, but Iowa broke in my lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. You'd see animals when you drive in Iowa, you, especially in the Northeast part, when we go up to visit family, go up there for vacations, and they're gone. Dairy cows used to be tons of dairy. There used to be a lot of dairy production. It's all gone. Mm -hmm. Hogs are gone. The only animals you'll see is maybe some cattle, and that's quickly dying. And then with the rise of robotics, most corn and soy will be robotics. Um, and with that kind of collapse of that family farm and what happened to Iowa, you just see the collapse of the middle. You see the rise of extremism. You see the anger. And part of this book is what happened. Um, but also, what do we do from here? That That is kind of my goal of this book is to diagnose the problem, have a very honest conversation where we are to the point now where one man does 5 million hogs in Iowa, one hog farmer, one hog baron in Iowa has his own private jet. Um, oh, the farmer with the private jet. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I mean, he, he's a largest local donor in Iowa. I mean, he writes a six figure check to the governor, has a home down in Naples. That first year of COVID logged over 200 uh, flights on his private jet when we were all at home. I mean, my big point in this book is the system we have now is radical. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about, like what you're like, the vision of what we are trying to do is traditional. It, we've gone so far off the deep edge here. Like my favorite little tidbit is Driscoll's doesn't Driscoll's is my berry baron. Mm -hmm. Driscoll's sells one in three berries globally. Ooh. Wow. They don't grow a single berry. No. <laughs> they contract. <laughs> They own the IP. They contract it out like sharecroppers. So that way, the contract grower has every incentive to exploit the labor environmental protect, you know, standards. So you're seeing the movement of berry production offshore where you can have 12-year-olds pick it. And Driscoll's goes, oh, we didn't know that. That's also like a... Oh, I'll stop. No, I, no, no. I didn't want to stop. But I, I mean, it is it is actually a side because, you know, you see that name and, and the way the human animal works is things that are familiar. I think we, we expect to trust. And that might even be, you know, part of the our coding, right? You're, you're familiar with something you trust. And that's probably one reason why brands carry weight is because you can trust things that you know them better. And so you see a name that's so common, but you don't really know what the real story is behind it. And, and because of that, right now, our structures and systems evaluate and prize IP <laughs> rather than um, the soil quality and the, the people who are touching it and the taste of the food and, and the justice and the joy that's living in, in the food systems. That is, even the word taste, that to me is something I realized right in this book is we've, this model is really doesn't care about taste. I mean, you have a backyard strawberry versus a strawberry grown in Chile. I mean, that's the story of the system is it's like this race to the bottom. And, we're you know, we're doing injustices. We're exploiting labor. We're destroying the environment. And taste is gone. My favorite little thing when I was uh, writing the dairy chapter was doing milk tastings. Mm -hmm. I had people drink my dairy baron's milk, um, <laughs> normal industrial milk, and pasture milk. And it was just the funniest thing to see. Like, this is all 2%, but the taste levels is way different. And inputs do matter. Yeah, inputs do matter. And so, um, you know, we didn't mention that much. You've got an academic background. You're at Yale right now, and you did the policy work for uh, for uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So you want to talk a little bit about your professional background? Yeah. So um, I'm a first-generation college student. I went to Grinnell College down the road from where I grew up, went to Madison, uh, started working at the at Library of Congress uh, Treasury. I kind of got involved a few years ago in this new antitrust movement. I know a lot of people talk about big tech, but to me, I think big ag is everything. Um, 
And so that's kind of where I've really focused on is that intersection of monopolies in the food system. And honestly, what kind of really got this book going, I've been working on this book for five years now. And what really got it going was a bar conversation in Des Moines where I heard that this hog baron had a private jet. And I was like, <laughs> that's good copy. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, how do I tell people what happened to Iowa? You got to have a story. You got to have a compelling narrative that hooks people. And it was at that moment, because like my brain's like, I, here's thesis, evidence, evidence, but you need emotion, you need narrative. And so what's been really fun about this book was, it's almost like thinking of like teaching a kid to eat their vegetables. I'm teaching you educational lessons, but I'm hiding it in narrative. <laughs> so like my whole point of the Driscoll chapter, the Barry Barron, is the offshoring of the produce system in America. The trade agreements, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of boring and really dry, So, but I'm... I'm kind of hit it in this like compelling story. And it's actually quite important though. And I know um, I was talking to someone and because I, I, I shared, I did a cleanse and they're like, oh, I'm doing a berry smoothie. And they're like, I can't afford berry smoothies. They're very expensive. And it's like, you know, mine are free because 20 years ago we planted these berries and now, you know, I pick them <laughs> and it just kind of works, right? You know, I mean, it's not even now that complicated. Raspberries spread very fast, by the way. But but so, but but to hear that there's you know a berry baron out there that controls one third of the of the berries in the United States, that's why is it? Why is that not? Or I don't want to say why is that bad. What are the consequences of having uh, a few people control the food system? Um, to me, the the biggest consequences are what it means for one in ten Americans that work in the food system. Um. You know, for everyone, because we always kind of focus on the farmer, but there's also the person that picks it, processes it, transports it, cooks it, serves it. When you engage in this concentration of the power, it's you kind of destroy the collectiveness. You destroy those wages get suppressed, workers get abused. I mean, the fact that it is not even that shocking that meat packers exploit 13 year olds at this point. Um, this administration can't seem to do anything. The meat industry is more concentrated. Um, that's where we are. Um, I mean, Iowa has the best soil in the world, yet it's one of the most obese states. You can't get local produce at most diners. Um, it should be Italy, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and then the environmental consequences of the um, barren-directed I mean, food system. I, I, the waterways in Iowa are an open sewer, and I understand that that's a really aggressive language. But when you have... Oh, man, I think it's like 20, 25 million hogs now in Iowa. I mean, those things defecate three times more than us. That's the manure of Texas and California combined. And uh, there's not that much regulation in Iowa. It's an open secret that, like in Iowa, if you build an industrial facility at 2,499, it's right under threshold, so it's way less regulation. Well, everyone knows they put three or 4,000 hogs on there, but the governor has gutted that agency. And so you just have rampant manure, rampant, no one checking on it. And so, I mean, I opened that chapter with a story of, you know, just a working class, small town Iowa woman who can't afford to go to the, you know, Florida, like my hog baron, but, you know, her vacation is kayaking in her local lake and she can't do it now. Even kayaking gives her a rash because the pollution, the manure pollution is so bad. Hmm. And so um, this book, um, what is the current title and when is it coming out again? Your book? The current title is Barons, Money, Power, and the Corruption of America's Food Industry. It comes out this March. Um, this is, and I also was very fortunate where uh, 
my everyone has that book when you're young that like that first adult book you read that shapes you uh-huh. and mine was fast food nation mm-hmm. and so eric who wrote fast food nation actually wrote my forward um kind of served as my mentor and i like to kind of think of my book continuing on that kind of tradition of looking at something we do every day with kind of a corporate power you know framework to it and I love that you chose the word barren. So tell us a little bit about what that word means. I mean, isn't, you know, what does barrens mean and, and a little history of the word? Yeah, I'm obsessed with this word. This whole, <laughs> I love imagery in these words where I just keep thinking we're living in another gilded age. And there's, I just think back to high school, there's that cartoon of, you know, those famous political cartoons from 100 years ago, those big fat robber barons controlling the Senate. I just feel like we're in that moment again. Um, when I say barren, that's what I mean. I'm trying to harken back to the two men. I mean, let's not be honest, mostly men who have so much power that they control an industry. Um, I'm harkening back to that, but it's almost kind of campy in a way that like we have a very barren, like that just sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I joked to my husband, like there's a whole B side of barrens we could have done that we didn't, you know, like there, there's a potato. So a Minnesota, Farmer told me about the potato barons. Like there, there's a lot of, but that's the norm now in, in the food system, our barons. Yeah, that is the norm. And so let's talk about local company Cargill. Would you consider yeah, them a so baron? Cargill's, Cargill's my green baron. And to be honest with you, they were not an original plan for this book. I really wanted to write about the farm bill. And I was struggling to figure out, you know, how do I tell this story? But Cargill's this weird company where it was everywhere growing up. It was next to my soccer field. It was next to, I'm from Cedar Rapids, next to my church, next to my, it's kind of, it's kind of everywhere. But you don't really know what it is. And I was just kind of dabbling in it. And there's only been one book written on cargo. They personally have commissioned their own personal history by an Ivy League professor over three books at 1,500 pages. One of the driest things I had to read. But they are bigger than the Koch brothers. They are the single largest private company in America. So I framed the the farm bill chapter around them. And my whole point there is the farm bill tried to establish back when it was first created during the new deal was it was trying to establish balance. You know, farmers want to grow, but you got, you can only, you got to figure out, you can only grow so much because then you can overproduce. You push the land too hard. There there is like, there's a a balance there because we saw what happened with the dust bowl. We pushed our land too far, but once you push your land too far, you know, what are you going to do when you're almost going to lose your land? You're going to plant more and you, you keep flooding the market. So we created this system of checks and balances in the New Deal. But then what you see, people like Cargill don't like that. Cargill is all about owning the middle. They, they actually started actually right near where my family used to live in uh, northeast Iowa. And then they moved to the Twin Cities. But all they are, they, they basically, from the second it's harvested till when it's on the grocery store, that's what they're, they're trying to control. So slowly Cargill built up this apparatus where they control the movement of grain, of processed commodities in America. And I use that story to tell the bigger story of what happened to the farm bill, where now the American farm bill is designed to overproduce grains. Um, it's all about making it grow as much corn and soy as you can because it wants to put in industrial thermal feed and ethanol. And it, what it does is it crowds out any animal on pasture, it crowds out any produce, all that kind of stuff. And I, for a while, I kind of, I kind of compared Cargill to like Standard Oil because Standard Oil was all about owning the middle, from, you know. Uh, because growing the crops the riskiest part. It doesn't want to do risky. It wants it from the second you know oil comes out the ground to when it's you buy it. That's what Standard Oil does, and that's what Cargill tried to tries to do too. 
But I almost think the more I kept writing about them is, oh, they're not Standard Oil. They're, they're like um, the Dutch East Indian Company. You know what I mean? Like they're like an old colonial empire because the sun never sets on the Cargill Empire. I mean, there's, uh, they're still in Ukraine <laughs> or sorry, Russia, because, you know, cargo is one of those things where we don't know who they are because they own the middle. You don't see cargo on your shelf. So uh, the, you use the word corruption in your title. Why do you, why, why, that's kind of a pretty strong word, but why would you use that yeah. word? I really, it is ingrained in me that concentrated economic power leads to political corruption. That is something like Louis Brandeis is kind of one of my heroes. I talk about him um, during the, my coffee baron. Uh, turns out Panera has a dark Nazi past, but that's a different conversation. But um, so Brandeis was this justice from a century ago that um, President Wilson appointed. His whole thing was you don't want concentrated economic power. You want to diffuse power. You want laboratories of democracy because concentrated anything is bad. And Throughout every baron, especially with my slaughter baron, the, the meat company, JBS, you, they don't have a brand on the American shelf, but they own a bunch of brands you probably know of. They're the largest meat company in America. They straight up got their empire through corruption, bribing politicians. They bribed over 2,000 Brazilian politicians, including the president. And then they also cut, they were also responsible for cutting down the rainforest in the Amazon to put beef there, which um, we're all living in a, in a very fragile planet that's on the edge. And there are... And, and that's one of the reasons it's on the edge is that we have a food system that's not focused on taste or vitality or soil health or justice or joy. But it's yeah. based on this this barren. And so JPS, of course, uh, there was also problems during COVID that came, you know, to light. And that's the thing, too, is we know what to do here. Like, this isn't rocket science. We dealt with the meat industry a century ago. It's it's this corruption. It's this political power that stops us from doing common sense things. I mean, that is to me is the most, that, that, that's the thing that bothers me the most because there's also so many people doing really good things out there. I mean, you walk into these different conferences, Marble Seed, what have you. I mean, even your previous guest is, we can unleash what I love this phrase uh, Alice Waters has called delicious revolution. If we just tackle the concentrated power of these few greedy men, they're holding us back. And that is my hope is like this because it's so cartoonish. I actually think it's a really good galvanizing bipartisan thing because it just feels morally wrong that one man controls five million hogs. Well, and the one thing I've been thinking about is this whole idea of how, you know, fear and division kind of works in the favor of um, concentration of wealth. And the counter to it, the remedy is um, is, is love. And um, um, I don't know if I want to say acceptance, but it's something broader than that. And I'm looking at the clock because yeah. we're down to our last minute. And again, we can talk a lot longer. But what else would you uh, like to say in these last uh, in the last minute, minute of the show? Um, well, just for your listeners out there, I'd really appreciate folks could pre-order the book. That's really this. My, I'm a first-time author, so that's really huge for just getting the word out. Um, I like to joke. We kind of live in the day and age. It's like the movie industry. You know, there's the Marvel books, and I'm like a the indie press, you know, not indie press, but uh, art house theater. So any attention you guys can give, I'd really appreciate it, pre-orders. And honestly, um, to your listeners out there, I'd love to hear what your what barons you find the most interesting. Yeah, I always love, like, each baron hits people differently. I have old money barons like the Cargill family. I have trashy new money. Uh, I love grocery, but I just find grocery the grocery industry so interesting. So, yeah, I would love to hear what folks think. 
So uh, um, Austin Frederick, he's the author of Barons, Money, Power, and the Corruption of the American Food System. He's also a fellow at Thurman Arnold's project at university, uh, at Yale University. So I thank you so much, Austin, for joining us. And uh, I also encourage people again to check out the North Loop Winter Market, uh, December 16th, Saturday, from 10 to 4. Uh, first time event. It's free. There's even some parking. Two hundred spots, so get get there early. Um, you listen to Food Freedom Radio on AM nine fifty, Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you. And start to make it better. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. So, yeah, taking that sad song. So, um, I, I love that interview. I'm going to start uh, that interview with um, Austin Fredericks on Barron's and, and really understanding what happened with our food system and what's controlling it right now. So imagine if we knew that there was a chemical that was blamed for millions and millions of acres of crop damage and blamed for in, in endangered species and uh, blamed for causing cancer. And there's a ton of really good research that is doing all this. And you just keep using it again and again and again and again. Um, and finally, the courts come along um, and, and say, um, no, that's not a good idea. So, um, so earlier this month uh, a case in out of Arizona the court ordered the EPA the or, the court said that the EPA violated its own rules and um, allowed that chemical um, and, um, and and so I mean actually even read the court um, case and I, I was reading up a, a lot on this and it's it's just so it's still so um, mind-boggling to me um, but uh, then I just heard now that the EPA is saying that they are going to allow these chemicals. So I'm going to talk to a farmer, Troy. Um, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Okay. So what is, and, and help me pronounce it right, dicamba. 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 Or that's what I, maybe it's something else, but that's what I always use is dicamba. Yeah, so what is it? Uh, it uh, It's a chemical that used to be called Banvil. Um, actually, i got to look this up right now. Okay. Um, that I remember, um, you know, it was a herbicide you spray to control broadleaves. So broadleaves are like soybeans happen to be a broadleaf. Um, anything with a big broadleaf. And uh, it's usually pretty good at it does something with growth regulation um, so that those crops... You know, the, the leaves sort of curl up, and then they, the plant doesn't grow very well or dies. Uh, and so, like, if you're playing, planting corn, you could spray uh, Banvale on your corn, and it would kill all the stuff that's not grass. Uh, the problem with Banvale a long time ago was it would drift a lot. So you'd spray it, and then the neighbor's farm might have soybeans, and the soybeans would get killed. So... Sometime along the way, uh, you know, Roundup was the first, they were Roundup-ready soybeans were one of the first genetically modified crops that got really popular, and then now there's been uh, dicamba-resistant, which is actually the, the chemical name of the chemical that was used in Banville, is available now that you can, you can plant, you can buy soybean seed uh, 
that has a trait where it's been engineered to survive application of this chemical. Um, so now what happens is like, oh, okay, well, we can spray dicamba on our soybeans and it'll kill the uh, water hemp and uh, giant ragweed and other stuff that um, ends up making soybeans kind of difficult to deal with. Especially when you're harvesting, if you have a bunch of weeds. If you have a bunch of weeds, so so when I, I heard someone talk really well about drift, so when I, I thought of drift as to like, oh, it's going to just drift a little bit. Does it sounds kind of harmless? But what decamba can do, I guess, is become almost like a vapor, so it can drift for miles. Oh, yeah. Yep, it will. It will drift for. You know, it was kind of notorious for drifting for miles, and. Um, you know, so you could spray it at certain times, and then you know it would turn into a vapor, and then you'd end up with, you know, a couple of miles away. Somebody else would have, uh, the, you know, if they had didn't have soybeans that were dicamba resistant, they'd have damage to their soybeans, or damage to their watermelons, or um, some trees, or any uh, all kinds of other crops. And so there was one um, infamous case, a peach farm, which is very important in its community, and it, it got seriously damaged from this drift. And so, so I mean, to me, it just feels sort of, sort of exasperating. But, um, but when, when, when these chemicals first started being used um, a, a while ago, the promise was, hey, we got GMO, so now we're going to be able to use less, fewer chemicals, and it's going to be better for everyone. Has that been the right. case? Uh, well, I mean, what I see is, is okay, well, now we're paying more for soybean seed and, and all these traded applications so that we can just spray more chemical cocktails on them. And, you know, it, it doesn't really seem to, it on one hand reduces, it in theory reduces the labor costs because you're maybe less likely to have to go out and hand weed, but I'm not seeing it. Um, I mean, I see some benefit, but it's, I don't know what to say. I mean, the, 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 the problem is, is, is you end up on this, this, this uh, escalator where, okay, well, now you've got this, and now you have to apply this other thing, and now you have to apply this other thing. And every time, the price only ever goes up. It's, it's not like the, the patents expire, and all of a sudden, hey, look, you can get generic... Uh, well, I guess you can get generic Roundup, but um, there's always a new, a new traded technology out there that's being marketed, and it's not like we're using genetic engineering or any of these things to improve the nutritional value of crops. We're just reducing the, and I'm not even sure where the the actual cost reduction comes in anymore because. We're increasing the money that flows to the providers of the technology, and there's less money available for other things. Well, and that's why I refer back to that book on barons. Who does make the money? And and what's the point of a food system? I mean, is the point of the food system for healthy, vital people eating from healthy, vital soil? <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing commodities too long to, to be, uh, you know, anything other than a little bit cynical about this because, you know, the, the, the signal I get is here's the price. 
and how much did you grow? So, I mean, I get told that farmers feed the world, but I don't see any connection between cheap food and feeding humans. Um, so, I, there's... I... It, it's it's not transparent. It's like, where does the food go? I, so I always wondered this growing up. It's like, okay, we're growing these crops in all these rows. Like, where's it go? Where's, well, where's the food? <laughs> we're, yeah, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about super weeds and what happened. Because, again, when, these, when Roundup first came out decades ago, the promise was we'll be able to use less pesticides and we'll be able to control things. And But that's not what well, happened. What I, well, okay, I, I do want to say this. What I did see happen is you didn't need to uh, get your kids into indentured servitude to come pull the weeds and the beans. Ah. Uh, you know, so there was a lot less hand weeding. You know, there was a lot less, there were fewer tillage passes. So, I mean, these chemicals have enabled, in a lot of ways, enabled no-till farming, which keeps more of the soil on the in the field and not floating down the Mississippi River. So there's... It's it's got some benefit. There are some benefits, um, but again, nobody's paying us to keep soil in the gra- soil on the farm. They're paying us for what do we deliver in commodities. So, if we can spray more chemicals and keep a little more soil, because we all understand that that's the long term value of the farm is actually keeping the soil there. Well, I, I guess we'll probably spray more chemicals because nobody cares at the other end. You know, nobody's giving me a, a significant price signal for chemical-free soybeans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember you were saying something like, if you plan on organic organic corn and futures. So talk about how that future systems works between corn and organic corn. Yeah, so right now I can go look at, okay, everybody, you know, what's the price of organic corn? So I'll go look, you know, I'll go look at... Uh, at my farmer's co-op, you know, this is my farmer's co-op, which is now an even bigger co-op, which because they merged with somebody else. Um, and I can go to the cash bids page and I can say, what's the price of corn in Manly, Iowa at the farm? And I can look out for October 2024. Uh, if I deliver corn to the elevator, I'll get, I can say, I'm going to contract to deliver 10,000 bushels of corn at $4.27 a bushel. Uh, so what that lets me do is it lets me sell the risk on what the price of corn is going to be. So I don't have to take that risk that between now and uh, December, the price doubles or the price drops by half. You know, if it was, I could contract ahead. And what, what this tells me is this, this kind of tells me, well, there's an oversupply of corn right now. And... And I know that because I can see that reflected in the price. When I go for, when I, if I type in we're gonna, the price. We're going to need to take a break. And, and I want to come back because yes. I think part of the problem right now is that the barons want, they want scarcity. They do really well on scarcity, but it's an abundant world. We have lots of corn. We have lots of wheat. And that's considered a bad thing. And I just think we need a system that, we need a food system that is healthy vital soil healthy vital people um we're going to take a break and we're talking um yes we're going to talk about this more we're going to talk some more so you're listening to food freedom radio i'm laura headline we'll be right back
love in our food system. Okay, we don't need it ran by barons who who think that if we have you know in, in this whole this whole structures, what are the core economic structures of our food system? And I'm asking this today, and I'm actually a little angry because um, yesterday the EPA came out um, they and said that farmers can still use this chemical that uh, a few weeks ago a court in Arizona said farmers can no longer use these chemicals because, and I'm going to just quote some, um, because millions millions of gallons are being used right now, but um, um, because um, th- these chemicals are blamed for millions of acres of crop damage and harm to endangered species. Um, since dicamba was approved for over-the-top spraying, its use has increased 20-fold. The EPA estimates 65 million acres, two-thirds of soybeans, and three-fourths of cotton are now dicamba-resistant. Roughly half the acres sprayed with this is is the area. So is the area of the size of Alabama. So even though they lost in court, the EPA is saying you can still use these chemicals. And I'm talking to a farmer, and I, um, Troy, um, Troy. So what do you think of all? I mean, I'm kind of tired of this drama. I just wish that I just wish we could sort of uh, stop using things that hurt water and human health and the health of the planet and the health of the trees. Well, I can tell you one thing. I I took a little did a little digging on the the news, and it sounds like what they said is like, hey, we're going to let you use what was already in the pipe you know we farmers had already bought right because you know there is a little bit of a a like what the hell's this court doing telling us what we can do you know it's like weeks from planting you know you've got everything lined up and you think you've got everything figured out and then some court shows up and says nope you can't do that and so i i what i understand is they said hey you know what yeah okay we're going to at least let you use what you've already got on hand. Now, that being said, I think this is a good time. This might be a good year for me to go plant non-GMO soybeans again. And then if I get any decamba drift, go out and record it and uh, start filing lawsuits against everybody who sprayed it because they knew that this thing had a problem. Okay, so now let's let's talk. How how do we start fixing this? How, not and I don't even want. How, how do we how do we create a food system that honors water? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is is you got to get the co-ops. You know, all you people that that like. I'm going to be a little irritable here because all you people who think you're doing great things by going to the food co-ops in Minneapolis, you got to have those food co-ops talk to the farm co-ops. You know, because because I don't know any any food co-op that actually goes out and talks to farmers, grower cooperatives. You know, actually, what and, you just said right now, and I'm 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 going to bring this because there is a big natural meeting of the cooperatives, and and I think that we are in little silos, uh, and so yep. trying to break down those silos, and actually, um, and I, I'm glad uh, glad you calmed me down a little bit because I mean, I, I really <laughs> I really believe that unity is. I mean, what we do to each other is we're doing to ourselves. What we do to the planet, we do to ourselves, and we yep. are we've inherited these economic structures that really don't work for the humans either. <laughs> they don't work for the trees, they don't work for the animals, and we need to find some way of, of moving into places of agency so that we can create uh, food systems that are um, well, and, more right. kind, insane, rational. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm gonna be a little bit political here. It's like, if you drive around rural areas, 
everybody in the city, see, I don't know, there's this perception like, oh, that's a red state. That's a red whatever. That's rural. Those people voted for... Those people voted for people who are going to get voted for politicians who are not representing their interests. It's like, yes, yes, they are. Uh, and then I sit around in Minneapolis and I hear people talking about politics, and I'm like, "Where's, where's the, where's the opposition?" It's like it's all one party rule in Minneapolis. And I go out to rural areas and I'm like it's all one party. Like I can't tell the difference between which party it is. Except that there's one in the rural areas and there's one in the cities. And if we got more connection, you know, with like people need to go out and talk to farmers. We need to go out into the rural areas, into the places that they're afraid to go. We need to get people from rural areas who are afraid to come to downtown Minneapolis because they think it's scary to get them to come down here and talk to people. Um, I, you know, this is, this is my soapboxes. We need more people talking to each other and we need the farmers co-ops in the rural areas to actually talk to the food co-ops in the cities. The problem with it is, is we're this agricultural production area for the entire world. And I looked at it once. If I planted non-GMO soybeans and I made tofu for, and I made uh, soybeans for tofu, I'd probably flood the Minneapolis market from one farm. And, you know, so then there's there's no room for any of the other farmers to sell local food because we're exporting it to the rest of the world. And there's there's good and bad things about that. But really, you know, and this is this is also a problem maybe with the local food thing as well, because we're not we're in a global world. Mm-hmm. It's not just local food. Well, I mean, local food is a nice way to insulate yourself from having responsibility for living in a global system. But then these these things are so big and they're so hard to you know wrap your head around. Like you you just look at it and go, "What do I do?" And you don't know. Well, and that's it because it, it, I, I agree with you. It's mind boggling. And um, so um, as far as the um, global, I mean, when the story first broke, a lot of people were talking about, OK, so now uh, uh, Bayer and Monsanto will sell more of these chemicals internationally. And then some people are even saying this could be put U.S. agriculture at a disadvantage. And so we are in a global system, but we're also in a global system on a planet that's very fragile, that is experiencing climate change, uh, an incredible loss of we'll say loss of biodiversity, but what that means, I mean, if we put a little love in our heart, what does it mean to have a loss of biodiversity? I mean, have you seen that in your life, a loss of biodiversity? You know, I saw, I I have seen some stuff come back. Like, I don't remember seeing eagles flying around when I was growing up. Right, and that's because we united around DDD. We came together. DDD, yes. Yeah. And, And I hope that there'll be more of that with, you know, okay, yeah, we've got this pipeline of chemicals in the system, and, you know, we're going to move on to other things like, hey, you know what, the writing's on the wall, we can use robots and lasers to kill weeds instead of chemicals, and... Yeah, let's talk. Let's uh, talk about six minutes because I know this is a passion of yours. So uh, there yep. is some new technologies out there that could be a solve. Um, so talk to us about robots and farming. Yeah, that one's an interesting one because, you know, I also like to say 
John Deere could have been building autonomous tractors 10 years ago. The reason they don't is somebody's got to be liable for that machine's operation. And the farmer is the liability shield. The farmer gets the farmer has the decision making authority to decide what to do in that field. And as soon as you outsource that to a program, um, the person who wrote the program is now potentially liable for what happens. And you know, this is gonna get really interesting in how the, the tech world which shows up and think, We can build one thing that's one size and one fits all and we're gonna like build this thing and everybody in the world's gonna use it like well okay you're going to build this thing and everybody in the world's going to use it and then everything bad that happens you're going to be liable for and i don't know if you know this is going to happen it's going to hit tesla at some point where we will give more forgiveness to humans than we will to machines and robots and corporations hmm. um and so if you start having a bunch of robots doing everything you know, they've got to be like a thousand times better than a human, but they're still going to make mistakes. Yes, and so- the, consequence, the consequence for the owner of that mistake is of, of that machine is going to be much larger. So that there's, there, is a, there is a potential for good things to happen with, with technology and farms. There's also, you know, it could just be more of the same thing. And so, Troy, uh, give us a little bit of your background, because you've been working with open source technology for 25 years, and you, you farm yep. in Iowa, so, but tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up on a farm, and I like to say I taught myself uh, electrical engineering, rewiring the bins on the farm, and, and then I went, to, I went to school for engineering, and I ended up doing software, um, and I ended up working on this software that was written by this guy, you know, started off as a project that a guy named Linus Torvalds did his, his his thesis project or his graduate something like that and he just posted it on the internet and said here have fun with this as long as you give other people the freedom to change it and that created this whole uh, Linux operating system and you know him and you know tens of thousands of other people who worked on on code and ideas with the you know we're not going to keep it a secret there is no secret sauce we're going to give it away we just our condition in giving it away is not that we is just that you give anybody else who has it the freedom to change it. And I really like that, you know, like that model because that, that gives, that distributes the power on what we do. You know, if you build a robot with that methodology, if somebody has the robot, then they have the freedom to change the program and the robot and make field upgrades to what the robot software does. So again, we started the show with um, an interview from um, um, uh, Austin Frederick, who wrote the book Barons. So, in our system yep. right now, um, who has the power um, in farming? In it's complicated because there are there are people who have had these family operations where they own a lot of land and they're running it. You know, and those those people have power. Um, I think, you know, it's to some extent, it's the people doing the work. It's the people actually making the decisions about what gets planted. And a lot of times, those are the farmers who are actually out in the combine operating things. Um, 
but you know what I've seen. You know, even when I was in high school, was it was the technology that allowed me to do with a combine harvester. You know, and I've been using some machines that are older than I am. That forty, fifty-year-old technology still allows me. You know, even that technology allows me to do with me and my dad and my uncle what used to take. You know, in a week, what used to take a whole family a month or two. So we have that. That the technology magnifies your capability, and if we distribute the knowledge of how to create and use and modify that technology, then you know I think that that is a good thing that that gets more people into the discussion, and, and maybe we at least have a chance of you know putting a little love back in our food system. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've really, you know, for me, I think it's like, where does the food, where does the food go? And if I don't even know where the food goes, um, how do I know what's happening? Have- well, and uh, so uh, the show is already, we have only 30 seconds. I really appreciate you right. um, joining me Thank today you. again, uh, Troy. And I'm still a little like, <sighs> I was really hoping that the com- camba, I mean, it is hurt millions of acres trees are hurt and we're using all these chemicals and yet we also need to bridge these divides between rural and urban and find ways of communicating with each other because yeah some of this technology has made farming a lot easier and made abundant food supplies so so thank you um the saga goes on um so i thank you for listening to food freedom radio thank you troy for joining us and have an awesome week